Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I am your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. If you work in the large corporation, how do you take the data and analytic product that you build for your employer, productize it as a software product, and build it up as a company? Did that question ever cross your mind? Every now and then, I come across brilliant software engineer or data scientists who build amazing product that does beyond a business intelligent dashboard. Instead, they are the people who know how to design and develop a complete end-to-end product solution. In this episode, I spoke to Ben Stanchel, who once built the analytic tool internally at Yammer, knowing what the business wanted from the analytic teams and what he could achieve with what he had built. Ben Stanchel took this opportunity to productize the internal tool and create a data analytic software company with his co-founder. As a chief analytic officer and co-founder of Mode Analytics, Ben built Mode Analytics for collaborative analytics. A streamlined analysis workflow with self-serve experience for business users, making it easy to share actionable data, insight, and story across entire organization. Ben and I start the conversation by talking about the power of writing and why we highly encourage everyone, especially the analytic professional, to start writing. Ben shared a few good tips on this topic. We then move to learn the corporate career Ben once had at Yammer and Microsoft. Subsequently, we talk about the internal tool he built at Yammer and how it was serving his business stakeholder. As Ben and his colleagues spoke to more analytic professionals in the Silicon Valley, they realized all other companies like Facebook and Google were equally building analytic internally. It was at that moment they realized what they had built. They could actually productize and build it as a software company. Ben shared with me a few more stories, challenges, tips, and his journey from the experience he built the data analytics software company. Now, if you are a data scientist or a data engineer who built awesome product and solution to solve problems for your employer, and it always intrigued, what would it take for you to build a company based on it? This is one episode that you do not want to miss. I would highly recommend listening to Ben and how he took such an internal tool and built it to become a $300 million global company. If you have any question for Ben or myself, make sure you send us an email or message on LinkedIn. This episode is sponsored by us, The Analytics Show. So wherever you are listening, follow the link in the description to join our first ever giveaway to win a thousand Dogecoin. No risk, no anxiety, no worry. Just enter, share, and stand a chance to win the ever-growing coin. It is a perfect way to start your journey into crypto without fear. We'll follow Elon Musk to the moon. 
Last but not least, make sure you click the subscribe button before the interview starts so you will be the first to be informed on the latest episode on how business leaders run a high-performance organization using data analytics. I am your host, Jason Ten, and thank you for listening. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, so most of it is is data oriented, obviously, and a lot of it comes from, from. So I've been working in data for a while. A lot of it comes from things that I've sort of picked up along the way, or, or ideas that I've had, or just like thoughts that have been sort of in the back of your head for a while. But honestly, most of that is kind of these like loose ideas that are sort of tossing on your head that don't really have a have a coherent story to them and make a whole lot of sense. Most of it comes from just having conversations like this. It's talking to other people in the community. It's talking to, to people who are thinking about these problems. It's reading what other people are writing and sort of trying to see like, oh, what stands out as interesting? What are the things where like, oh, that's a really interesting point. And kind of try to explore it in my head to, to see what I think about it. And then eventually that turns into to some sort of topic. So so a lot of it is is really just just conversations. I think that that it's not like go sit in a hole and come up with a bunch of brilliant stuff. To me, it's it's mostly talk to people, see what other people think. And then most of the posts actually are, are kind of remixes of the ideas that other people have. So they're not exactly original songs. They're mostly just me trying to piece together the, the very smart things that other people tell me and trying to put some sort of coherent story around it. Yeah, I like so. I, I was working on a thing today. So most of the times, I publish things on Friday for whatever reason. That's how it's happened. Uh, it was sort of a, a unintentional accident that that just became the schedule. So I was working on things for this Friday, and it was as I was kind of working on it, I was I was realizing like this is probably stuff that people have all said before. There's nothing in here that strikes me as actually terribly new. But I don't think that's okay. I think it's it's one, not everybody has read everything. And so if you're sort of making the same point that somebody else made a while ago in some other post or some other article or some other book, like, great, a lot of people haven't read that book. And I think that's okay to, to continue to talk about those ideas. The other thing is it's a lot of it to me and a lot of the things that I try to do in the stuff that when I talk about it is, it's not just about, hey, here are like 10 bullet points of ideas. It's trying to tell the story in a way that, that, people might remember it or in a way that like it takes a different angle that other people have taken. The main point may be the same mundane point that people have made a hundred times, but ultimately what it is that makes people remember it or what makes it stick or what makes people see it in a different perspective in the same way that I see it when I read something else is, okay, you just told it from a slightly different angle. And so to me, that's really all it is. It's like, all right, yeah, you're not going to make a bunch of new points. Don't stress too much about this isn't the most original idea ever. Instead, try to tell something that you think is interesting and has a story to it. And I think that's a that to me is the way that I'd rather do it instead of what's the most contrarian thing I can come up with? What's the thing that probably nobody else has said? And let me try to say it and see what happens. 
and you can do that. But to me, it's more interesting to tell the better story than, you know, try to come up with the most like outlandish or novel thing that you could possibly say. This is, I've literally never thought of this. This is exactly what I was talking about, like where ideas like this stuff come from. And I've never thought about this before, but TikTok. So TikTok is the most derivative thing in the world. Like every TikTok is literally just a, there's somebody who made like one meme and then the entire world beats the thing into the ground, making it a million ways over. And yet we watch it. And it's like, every one of them is still entertaining. And I think like that, that to me, you don't like writing these sorts of posts can follow the same pattern where it doesn't need to be, I am making a new meme. It's like, hey, yeah, a million people have already made this meme, but guess what? I'm making it from a particular angle. I'm making it with a particular flavor. There are people who might like that. And if I make it interesting and fun, then people will probably read it. And it's like the fact that it's a derivative, I don't go plagiarizing people, but the fact that it's a derivative in the sense where you're not saying something totally new, you're like putting your own kind of kind of spin on it. That's still something very valuable, still something that's interesting, and still something that people might enjoy. So there are a few different ways I think I would answer that. There are things that I've enjoyed writing, like the, the process of writing it, because they are the topics that either I care a lot about or they're the topics that just lend themselves to being more fun to talk about. Like I was saying, that, that part of my view of this is the point of it is not to make it strictly the most interesting or the like not to make it strictly the most like informationally dense. It's to me to make it interesting and to make it something that people enjoy reading. And so places where there are topics that lend themselves to being able to like have a narrative that is fun to tell or have stories that are fun to tell or be able to incorporate kind of jokes into it or whatever. Those are ones that I tend to enjoy more. Some of the things that are like not data related actually are, are a little bit more in that vein. Honestly, there are things that I enjoy writing because they're topics I care a lot about. So there was something I wrote recently about data making people less decisive because they tend to get a type of analysis paralysis that's that's more about like a reluctance to make a decision without feeling like the data is telling them to do something. And there are sometimes you just have to make a decision. Like the, uh, the future is uncertain and you have to make a decision despite that and you can't sort of analyze your way out of it. So it's not strictly analysis paralysis in the sense of like, we've got so much numbers, so many numbers, what do we do? It's more like, we don't have any numbers that are going to tell us but we can't try to figure that out. There are topics like that that I care a lot about that I enjoy because it's something that I just like want to talk about. And then there are things I think that are writing. It wasn't necessarily so interesting, but it generated some conversation or people responded in a way where it's, it's like fun to be able to talk about it. And it was a topic where it was like, Oh, okay. There's some people who have really interesting thoughts about this. Where do we go from here on that? And I think there are a few posts about 
pieces of data technology or kind of the future of data tooling and all that kind of stuff that have generated some of those conversations. And so I think those are those are interesting. There was one about kind of how we assess analytical work that got some people to agree and disagree to and stuff like that. So so yeah, so I think it's there's a lot of different ways in which it's can be enjoyable. And to your earlier question about people who are wanting to do more of this, but don't don't always, you know, it's hard to kind of get started. That's one of the things that I've actually found from this is there's a lot more pieces of it that you can enjoy than you may initially think that it was. I didn't expect to go in and be like, this will be fun to write. I expected to do it because like, yeah, okay, these are some things that it might be, they're interesting topics. I'll put them out there and see what happens. And then you find places where you're like, oh, okay, I really enjoyed this or I really enjoyed that that aren't always the, the kind of exactly the, the types of things you might have expected. Well, you can tell me after this this podcast if that's true. Uh, honestly, I would say no. <laughs> like, I think it has in one way and hasn't in another. And the way that it has is, and this is something that various, like the writing people on the internet will tell you, writing about a topic forces you to, to figure out what you think about that topic. So it is very clarifying in that sense that if you have a kind of loose opinions about something, writing a post about it will get you to a point where you have firmer opinions about it, or you at least kind of know where you stand on it. Maybe you're like, I don't know if it's A or B, but you will at least be clearer and like, I don't know if it's A or B and here's why I don't know, instead of this kind of feeling of like, I'm not really sure, but I don't really have any reasons why. So I think in that sense, writing is very helpful to, to clarify things. I think it can be, in terms of like communication, in some ways it can be detrimental because you develop a writing style or you develop kind of a, a type of syntax that is the syntax of what it is on paper. And that doesn't always translate to me in the way that you would communicate in conversation. Sometimes it does. And sometimes like conversations are the ways that you would write and stuff like that. But that's not the most, I think, effective conversational communicators are not necessarily the most effective writers and vice versa. And so I think like if you really, if you start to write a lot, you start to think in that sort of syntax and that syntax isn't necessarily the thing that is going to lend itself best for a presentation or for a conversation or whatever. And so I haven't ever talked to anybody about that. I don't know how, I don't know if I talk differently nails than I did nine months ago when all of this stuff really got started. So maybe that's just like the way it feels and actually in practice, there is no difference or maybe it's actually better. I don't know. But like, to me, it feels a little more, tied to that style and that feels a little more it doesn't feel as like natural in a conversation though i think the idea is i have a much clearer sense of what i think about them because the writing has forced me to Yeah. And, and like I said, I, I don't know what this conversation would have been like a year ago prior to me doing all of this. And if I would have like sounded exactly the same or if I would have talked about things differently. So, so maybe, maybe it's all just a feeling and none of it's real. I, I really don't know. Sure. So Mode is a analytics company. Uh, we build products for analysts and data scientists and for the people they work with. So it is a tool for analysts to be able to create the work that they want to create, do the analysis they need to do, and then distribute it out to other folks in the organization. And then those folks can build on top of it and do their own analysis to extend it. 
So if you're familiar with a tool like Tableau, it's it's roughly shaped like a Tableau, though more oriented around the kind of modern analytics workflow that is you know SQL and Python and R focused with visualizations instead of just being a visualization tool. Like I said, it was about eight years old. We founded it after building an internal tool that looked similar to it at a company called Yammer, which was acquired by Microsoft in 2012. We had built this tool for our team. So I was on the analytics team there. Our job was basically to answer questions for folks around the business. It was it was kind of the beginning of the modern data science team, basically, where it wasn't about just doing dashboarding. It wasn't about just building like machine learning models for predictive algorithms and products. It was about answering strategic questions for the business, like which market do we say, or which segment do we market to first, or which product do we ship, or how do we assess sort of the health of the business and, and make big strategic decisions about that. So we built a tool for our team to be able to answer those questions and do that work and collaborate with other folks around the business. Realized that that was something that wasn't a tool that only we needed at Yammer. We realized it was something that had a lot more broad applicability to other data teams that were often in tech companies, but continuing like kind of starting to pop up all over. And so we left to build a product kind of in that, it's like kind of around that same idea in 2013. And that's what that's what Mode is. So Mode is at its core that product that's designed for those data teams and their stakeholders, uh, and kind of has obviously expanded over over the years. Yeah. So Yammer was building just a totally different product. Yammer was, Yammer was a product that was akin to Slack or Microsoft Teams, or it really was was a Facebook for work before Facebook for work was a thing. Like it was a Facebook clone. Like back to the conversation about everything being derivative, Yammer was very derivative of Facebook. And then instead of it being sort of a social network for everybody, it was designed to be a communication platform for people who you work with that just had kind of a feed to it instead of email or whatever. The thing that we were working on and the tooling that we had built and, and I was involved in building, but was primarily a user of, was an internal tool. It was just a data tool to help the data team. And the reason we had built it was because we had a job to do, which was this kind of work with other folks around the business, help answer their questions, be like a strategic partner with them as they're trying to solve problems. And the tooling in the market at the time didn't really solve that need. Then there were a lot of BI tools out there that were designed much more for just like reporting, but couldn't help with those other questions. And then there were some advanced analytics tools that were kind of RStudio or Jupyter Notebooks or the, the kind of like coding tools, tools more oriented around scripting languages, but they weren't good for the stakeholders that we were working with. Like we couldn't send the CEO in RStudio like a markdown file or a Jupyter Notebook and be like, here's your answer, because he would have no idea what to do. And so we, we ended up building this thing that, that sort of, it wasn't, it didn't have R and Python and it was mostly SQL focused. But it was kind of solving that same problem of we need to use more advanced tooling than a BI tool, but we also need to make it so that other people can easily kind of collaborate with us on it. But yeah, it wasn't, we weren't building anything from Microsoft for other companies. We were building this strictly as an internal thing. And then after the acquisition, we realized that like a lot of people at Microsoft wanted to use this tool. And then a lot of people on Silicon Valley had built similar things like LinkedIn had an internal version and Airbnb did and Facebook did and Pinterest and Spotify and all these companies have built these kind of internal query tools that were that were all sort of of the same skeleton. Um, they all had different details that were a little bit different, but they all kind of shaped the same. And so that was the point where we were like, hey, if everybody's building this, 
one, seems like there's a market for it. And two, the companies that are building it are the companies at the forefront of thinking about what to do with data. It was Facebook and Pinterest and LinkedIn. And those folks, those are the companies that were really pioneering what data we thought was going to become. And so what was happening inside of those companies was what our prediction basically was and our bet was that will happen kind of more broadly across the entire market. And so if we build a product for those the teams that are serving those companies, we will eventually be building a product for a team for teams that are serving like the entire market. Yeah, and there are two things I would add to that that have surprised me, honestly, in my experience in this. And so, so I, Yammer was the first tech job I had. I had worked in, I had a, a job prior to that, but but Yammer was the first tech job. Certainly, you look at Microsoft and coming into the tech world, you think of like Microsoft and Google and Facebook is like, all right, these are the people that do this stuff right. They're the ones who are like the the well-oiled machines. They, everything they do is is good. After the acquisition, we started working a little bit with folks in Redmond. So that's where Microsoft is headquartered. We started working with like the Microsoft team to figure out some of the stuff that they were working on. And they were like, we were a data team. We started talking to their data team about how they did analytics and that kind of stuff. It was bad. Like they weren't doing a very good job of it. And like, we didn't do a great job of it either necessarily, but it struck me as how everybody is kind of a mess. Like everything from the outside, all of these companies look like they have it really together. And then you talk to people who work there universally, you talk to anybody who works at any company, no matter how good it looks from the outside, everybody's like, this place is a train wreck. 
organizationally, it's a disaster. Nothing ever works. Like the whole thing is always a huge mess. Very rarely when you talk to somebody like, oh yeah, this company's really got it together. Like every company is kind of a mess. And so one, that was very true of, of my, it's true everywhere, but it's true of Microsoft too. And true of the two things that they build where the technology Excel is really well built. Excel said 40 years of development and that thing is airtight. Everything else, kind of a mess. And like, certainly the internal tools were that. And that's one of the reasons that like we were interested in starting Mode is we had built these internal tools at Yammer. Microsoft had their own internal tools. Internal tools are always like held together by rubber bands and, and duct tape. It's, they're always these things that people have. They have a 10-year roadmap that they want to build that they've built six months worth of, and they never go any further. There's always a 10% done product. And so, yeah, if you've built some internal tool or you've built some product that you feel like, well, this isn't good enough, this wouldn't live up to what it is that people are doing at Silicon Valley or people are doing at Facebook and Google, it's like the things that fly internally at those companies they're not any good either. And it's not because the thing, it's not like, really, it's not that they're not any good. It's that all of these things are pretty good. They do the job. And if it does the job, it's it's probably pretty good. They aren't these like super polished things that if you've built something that's solving a problem for you, you're probably doing just as well as anybody who's built anything inside of these other companies did. Well, also, I add one other thing to that too, which is there is like a, a way in which this appears wrong that is kind of fake that you people like big companies will release stuff. Like they will open source things like Facebook will open source Presto or whatever. The amount of work they put into doing that is huge. And like those aren't, that is not what everything looks like. Like the Presto, when the Facebook open sourced it massively further along than anything else probably they built because they knew they were open sourcing it. And because it's like, that's both a technology to provide the community, but it's also a recruiting tool. It's also the sort of thing that they want to like be the public face of how Facebook thinks about technology. Don't take that as the that is the standard for everything that Facebook does. The things that are the one things that see the light of day are the things that that have gone through a lot of extra work. They have a lot of people supporting them so they can get to the point where they see the light of day. So part of it was we had seen what like the internal tool that we built could do and how useful it was, despite knowing that it, it was something that we hadn't really built very far out. Like despite it being an internal tool with all of the, the trappings of an internal tool where it's got, it's buggy and it's not really well designed and there was no designer who ever thought about it and like all those sorts of things, it still was useful. So I think that gave us some confidence that that if you put real investment into building a product instead of just building an internal tool, then there's there's a market for it. Part of it was also having conversations with our companies and, and seeing kind of what it is that other people are trying to do and realizing that, again, we weren't alone in this problem that, that we had solved. And part of it, if I'm honest, is was like sort of naivete and just the belief that why not? Why can't we do it? Let's try it and see what happens. I mean, I think, I think there's an attitude in Silicon Valley about that that is got an idea, start a company. Like that's what we do here. And so I was not from that world. That was not something that was like 
I don't know that I would have done it on my own in part because I, was, I would have kind of had the impression, like the thing you're talking about people writing, I'm kind of like, I don't, that's not what I, I don't know how to do that. But a couple of people, the other two founders were people who were, had been around for much longer. One of them is actually from Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley encourages that. Like I, for better or for worse, and I think it's mostly for the better. That's kind of the spirit in the air is if you have an idea, go start a company and see what happens. And on one hand, that's just a cultural thing. On the other hand, there is an ecosystem that makes that possible. Like, it's not like taking out some loan on your house to go start a restaurant and hoping for the best and the thing goes under and now you're $100,000 in debt. Like Silicon Valley has the funding system that has the like venture capitals, venture capitalists that will make it possible for you to do that without having to take on a bunch of financial risk on your own. Like you're not, you're not having to like burn through your life savings to do this thing. And so I'm not going to say it's no, it's not like no risk by any means. Like there's certainly risks that come along with it, but it's not, super bold and brave thing where you're putting it all on the line. Like that's, that is what the ecosystem in Silicon Valley does is it lets you start a company without having to make that bet. And so that was part of it was, it was like, yeah, we can do it because we're in an ecosystem that will encourage it. Why not? Let's see what happens. There certainly there were a lot of early people. I think there's a few ways I could I could describe that. I think there were some people who were supportive in that they are like, yeah, go do it, and I'll invest in it, kind of thing. Which part of that was we would come out of a company that just got acquired. There were like again, that's sort of the such as the circle of life in Silicon Valley is like companies get acquired, people make money, they invest it in other startups, and it just goes on and on forever until the giant Ponzi scheme collapses. In that willingness to say, hey, I'll take a bet on it, that gives you some confidence that you're not an idiot. It gives you some confidence that like, this seems like a wild idea to me, but other people are like, I'll put some money into it. You're like, maybe it's not a wild idea. Maybe this could be real. So I think part of it is is just seeing the support of other people. Part of it is also, again, kind of the general atmosphere of the ecosystem that doesn't, for lack of a better term, doesn't make fun of the idea. Like, Kind of going back to the writing thing that you're talking about, one of the things I think that holds people back in doing that is like, will this fail? Will this actually work out? Like, I don't want to go do it. I don't want to start writing a blog, have nobody read it. And then I kind of feel like a fool for putting myself out there, having tried a thing and everybody sort of rejected it. Certainly that can happen when you start a company in Silicon Valley where like you can try to start it and nobody wants to be involved in it. And then you feel like you had a bad idea. But the idea of starting it, nobody's going to ridicule for that. Nobody's going to be like, you thought you could start a company. What an idiot. If people are going to be like, oh, great, that was cool. Like, didn't work out. Sorry to hear that. But like, okay, you tried. And that's what you do here. And so, you know, I think there is that that is encouraging of it too, where you don't feel like you're doing a thing that is you're going to be sort of looked at funny for trying to do, like a lot of people do it. More specifically, your question of like, who are the people that really encourage you? I think that the other group of people I would say are the people who joined. Like, the early hires, there was a handful of folks that were former coworkers of ours that were the first folks that joined. Um, those are the people who really make you feel like, okay, somebody has faith in this, that they're willing to not just like put a little bit of not write a check. They're not willing to just like not make fun of you. They're willing to state some element of their career on it. Obviously, if it doesn't work out and they have a job for six months and they go and get another job, it's like in a world for them. So it's not like, again, they're not risking their livelihood forever. But they're certainly willing to take a very, very big bet on saying, hey, I believe in this thing that you're doing. 
And so I think those early folks, the first few engineers that we hired, the first designer, first marketer, all those folks were very talented and capable people who could go get any job in Silicon Valley. And the fact that they chose this one, I think was the kind of thing that, that gives you the real push to say like, okay, somebody really believes in this. And these are people who are have options and are smart and could choose anything and they have chosen this. Um, and so like in the moments of sort of doubt about, should I be doing this? What am I doing? Like, am I qualified at all to do this? Those are the sorts of things that I think are the real votes of confidence that make a difference. Yeah, so it's different in, there are two kind of sides of the market, I would say. One side is the classic BI tools or tools that are data tools meant for kind of general data consumption. So those are BI tools, they're Tableau, they're like business objects and micro strategies, kind of legacy BI tools, tools like Lookers and more modern BI tools. Mode is different than those in that it enables people to do more advanced and flexible analysis than you can do in a typical BI tool. So if you are using a BI tool and you want to ask a question that isn't sort of pre kind of anticipated, then be most BI tools, you have to kind of model the data and say, okay, here's the metrics we can look at and here's how we can cut it and all that kind of thing. If you want to ask a question that is sort of stepping outside of that sandbox, you often can't do it and you have to go to something else. Exactly. Like you, you make you make a ticket for the IT team to like do this thing and update your your semantic model and all that stuff. It takes a really long time. Mode is designed for analysts that want to bypass that process, that are getting asked questions and they're not going to try to answer it in a BI tool. They're going to try to answer it by writing a SQL query, by putting visualizations on top of it and all that kind of thing. So it, it takes a step from the BI tools and towards the like, hey, we have a flexible advanced analytics tool. On the other side of the market, you have the tools that are these like VR studios and Jupyter Notebooks and all those things that are designed for data scientists. Those tools don't support their end users very well. Like they don't support, again, I can't share Jupyter Notebook with a CEO. There are now sort of more and more tools that are sort of fitting into this vein, but there's the early versions of it didn't do anything to help me share it. Like it was kind of a, a single player mode tool. And so essentially what mode is, is, is a blend of those such that it is more BI tool for the advanced analyst. It's like got the shareability. It's got the, the kind of drag and drop charts that enable analysts to share something that their stakeholders can do more with. But it's got the advanced analytics side of the sort of creation process such that it's not just a BI tool with these sort of rigid models. So the aim really is to say, hey, like when you are consuming data, sometimes you want to have drag and drop tools. Sometimes you want to write queries. Sometimes you want to build models in R we should have an environment that kind of supports you being able to fluidly move between those modes of working. And that's what, that's what mode is. Instead of saying, Hey, we are all BI tool, drag and drop stuff, or we are all scripting language. It's more of choose the right tool for the job and be, be kind of the appropriate type of analytical function for, for whoever it is. To you. So specifically for mode, like I was the customer that we were building a product for people who did the job that I did. And so in that way, it was very helpful because it was, let's solve the problems that I know I have. And you obviously don't want to build a product for a market of one, but it is helpful to know what are the actual problems that people in this role have? How do they actually work? And particularly for kind of technical roles like an analyst, or you could imagine if you're, you're a designer and you're building products for designers, 
knowing the ways that designers work makes it way easier to build something that kind of understands that and understands not just, hey, I'm a designer and I need to make this and ship it here, but kind of the connotations in which they do that. There are things that aren't going to be apparent in just looking at a product as to why it works a certain way. But once you start using it, it'll be like, oh, okay, of course it needs to work this way because I always do this thing or I always take this step. And so being able to to kind of follow those patterns because you yourself have walked them is a very helpful thing. That obviously only applies to building a product for analysts. I think as like an analyst, what is it like to be someone who's starting a company? On one hand, it's, it's helpful. It makes you more comfortable with like building a business that is more oriented on top of data. It makes you helpful thinking about the, the business analytically. Certainly, I mean, all of Node's founders and our employees were people who had like analytical backgrounds. Certainly made us a company that was very willing to sit down, look at a problem, study it, try to figure out what to do. So we weren't sort of being pulled in all sorts of directions. It wasn't something driven by ego or driven by just the, the kind of emotional decision-making. So I think that's generally a good thing. Uh, it also helps you create a culture where data is important, all those kinds of things. There is, I think, a downside of that, which is basically the thing I was talking about in the beginning about you can't make all of your decisions on top of data. And data people tend to be understated. They tend to be nuanced in the way that they try to reason about stuff. They tend to try to be accurate and scientific in how they think. That's all well and good. But sometimes the thing that you actually need is you just need like some ambition and boldness. And especially for an early stage startup, like you could have three different things you could do. You have no information about any of them. The thing you actually should be doing is not trying to analyze which decision to make. It's kind of great. These all three probably could pan out about the same. Pick one, be bold about it, be committed to it and like go after it. And I think that that level of conviction doesn't come naturally for analysts because they are trying to study the problem and figure out what the right move is. And it's like, they're all the right move. What you actually need to do is just commit to one. It doesn't matter. The analysis doesn't matter. What matters is sort of the conviction with you with, with which you make the decision. And if you are always sort of like, well, what about this detail? Let's analyze this. Let's analyze this. You are inevitably not going to be as like convicted in that decision as you probably should be. So, so I do think you have to like counteract that some and just have some like, all right, we're putting our head down. We're running through this problem. We're not going to like study it too much. We're just going to try to try to go after it. And in that case, and I think one, you have to, if, if you are someone who's very oriented about the data, it's not even, suppose that the data wasn't unequivocally like this is bad. Suppose it was just mixed. The result I think in that case is sort of taking a lukewarm approach towards the idea. It's like, okay, we'll pursue it. We'll test it out. We'll see what happens. You kind of try it out. Maybe the data continues to come back like promising, but not overwhelming. You essentially end up sort of tentatively moving in that direction. and. The thing I think that you should be doing is 
if you believe in Amazon, if you believe that Amazon Prime is the right move, and, and maybe the data says it is, maybe it doesn't, maybe you don't know, it's still being like, okay, we are going to do this and we are 100% behind it. And like, in some ways, we are going to make it a success. Like, we are going to commit to it until we make it a success. And there's a point at which obviously that doesn't work. You can't like conjure something into working just by, like, you can't just will it to happen and all that. But the like it's not really an over-reliance on data, but a, an unwillingness to make a decision or to make a stand on something because the data isn't 100% behind it just leads you to be tentative. And I think that's not what, especially in an early stage company where you don't have that much data anyway, isn't what you need. Like you need, leadership is not being the best analyst and interpreting the data better than anybody else so that you make the smartest decision. Like leadership is making a decision despite the data being unclear and still having the courage to make that call without having data to fall back on to say why you're doing it. Well, I mean, like on one hand, the title is when you start a company, you can kind of make up titles. And so like, it's, it's not a super clear what that title means. For sure. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. So in this, like, on one hand, my role has been basically, it's basically been like thinking about problems analytically for mode. Like that's kind of part of the job. And it's essentially like being an analyst for the exec team-ish is, is how you can sort of shape it. It's not quite that, but like you can kind of say that. And so in that case, it's like an extension of the job that I had. I was an analyst. I was a hammer. I was doing it for a product and sort of engineering teams mostly. But like, that's basically what this is, is it's all right, think about problems. And I know a lot about the business just from having been there for a while and having seen a lot of different parts of it. And it's like, all right, help the rest of the exec team think about these problems and, and kind of be an analyst for that. The other side, though, is like most of the time that has not been my job. I have I have basically been doing what it is that founders often find themselves doing, which is bouncing between a bunch of different roles, sort of filling the gaps that that are like, okay, well, we need someone to fill this. We need someone to fill this. As the team grows, new teams emerge that need initial leaders. People will leave that leave holes and you have to sort of step in and, and do that. These are not jobs that I am good at. But as a founder, you can almost always do it because you know enough about the business that you're not going to come in like totally blind. You have some credibility because nobody's going to question necessarily is like, they're going to be like, why is this person like this person doesn't really know what they're talking about, but they're not going to question whether or not like you should be the person who's involved. It's, it's, you have some credibility just by being a founder. And so that's basically what I've been doing. A lot of this is essentially trying to step into the roles that, that I need to fill, knowing enough about the business to make it passable, keep the seat warm until we hire someone who's, who's much more of an expert to do it and then kind of move on to the next version of that. So, so in that sense, like being a chief analyst has basically been, been just a, a catch-all title for, for me to move around to a bunch of different roles with some stops in terms of actually doing, doing like analysis and being like a data person for, for the company. But, but it's certainly also been, there have been stints in product and stints in marketing and stints in support and customer and solutions and things like that. So it's not, it's not been strictly like one job for eight years by any means.
Yeah, I mean, I think there is a, yeah, you end up as a founder getting tossed into a bunch of different roles that most employees wouldn't do. Like, it's, it's not they wouldn't do is like not capable of it, but it's just like, if I join mode is like, I was an employee. And then they were like, actually, we know that you joined to be a PM, but we need you to run marketing. I'd kind of be like, what? Uh, I'm not going to do that. Like, that's not why you hired me. I think part of it is that that most employees have job descriptions and founders don't. Not really. And like, that's not necessarily a good thing, but you kind of end up finding yourself doing doing whatever. The other part of it, I think is also, so it's like partly just the nature of the role. And, and it's not so much like people have the ability to say no, but it's it's sort of the expectation is that they would say no, that, that they join to do a job. And so if you ask them to do some wildly different job, it's kind of like, that's not why I'm here. Whereas a founder started a company, presumably to make the company successful. And so like, if they have to do a different job to do that, well, their job is to make the company successful. Now you can apply that to other people. There are certain employees that join with that attitude that will do the same thing and stuff. So it's not, that's not, I think, universal, but I think it's, you have to put sort of broad outlines on it. The other thing that I would say is there is a privilege in being a founder that is you're not going to get fired. Like if you get asked to do, if I get asked to run marketing, which I have been twice, I'm not going to be good at it, but I'm not going to get fired for it. Like I'm not, there is a certain level of like risk that I am not taking on that somebody else would be taking on. And it may not even be getting fired, but it may just be getting like humiliated. Like if I come in and do a bad job of it, it's kind of like, well, this is my job. I kind of come in, I try to keep things together. And if I don't really do it, that's what you expect. But with somebody else, like that's, there is a sort of they're they're under a brighter like light like there's more of a microscope on how they're doing i think they feel more like they have to perform because the company is assessing their performance because they can get fired because like they are for me my success at mode is basically mode success if mode succeeds then the founders are going to succeed because they can be like what'd you do i started a successful company that's it like what job did you do nobody's gonna ask they're just gonna be like you started a successful company for an employee, that's not the case. And so I think like there's there's a lot more understandable attachment to, I want to be in a place where I can succeed. I want to be in a place where I'm not put at a disadvantage. I'm not having to climb a steep hill. I'm not like set up to fail. And so the like risk appetite in that sense for a founder can be much higher because failure is failure of the company, not failure in your particular role, not really. Whereas for an individual contributor, like failure, not a contributor, like someone who's not a founder, I guess. Failure is is often more your own failure, or that is how it's perceived. And so, you know, I think that risk is just much higher. So part of it is you just have to understand the customer. Like you have to, you have to know who it is you're serving. You have to understand what it is they're trying to do. And that I think was the first version of mode, like it's secret sauce. If there has to be, you know, if we have to sort of use that term, the secret sauce of mode was probably just like an understanding of what analysts did. There are a lot of the vendors in the market, especially I think this is changing, but we were early to the kind of analytics and data science team market where there weren't a lot of people who had done that job who were 
leading companies and develop developing products. And so a lot of the tools were being built for other people, basically. And so part of it, I think, was just understanding that specific thing and like pushing forward a lot of the stuff that we wanted. Yeah. So in the beginning, that was in a lot of ways the the thing that we brought is like hiring people who the founders as well as the their employees were people who were familiar with how data teams work. And so a lot of that just came from they had worked closely alongside data teams. They knew how data teams operated, like a deep understanding of of the customer. And especially at that time, there weren't a lot of companies that were building data products that had that that experience that a lot of like BI tools and things like that were built by other folks. And so we were one of the first to build a tool that was sort of like truly built by data people for, for those folks. Um, as the team has grown, that has obviously changed. Like you can't hire 200 people that are all analysts. And so it is a challenge, frankly, of like how you get people to really understand how it is that, that folks work. A lot of it comes from just having to getting people to use the product internally. A lot of it comes from making sure that folks are always talking to customers. A lot of it comes from us trying to bring in customers who sort of tell their story about what it is that they're doing, what problems they're trying to solve, what they like about mode. But you do have to make an effort to make sure that folks can see that. And so part of it is also hiring folks who have expertise in those areas. So mode builds a lot of visualization products. You know, we want to hire folks who who have experience building that kind of technology, that there is a lot that comes with that sort of like domain knowledge that makes you able to build a much better product that if you're someone who's ever worked on it, it's just it's just much harder to do. Yeah, so it's a huge part of that process. I mean, I think like in the early stages, if you're a, a very young company trying to raise money, you have no data to, to actually show anybody. Like you are raising money in the, the early stages off of an idea and really off the team that people are making a bet on who you are and what they think you can build and how well you fit solving the problem you're trying to solve. So in our case, we were basically like saying, hey, we're data people. We're trying to build a data product. Do you trust us to do it? And so it was basically like, are, does this group of people look like a group of people that I would, I would be willing to put money behind? As you get bigger, those sort of investment decision shifts from potential to proven traction. And so that, that is like a that is a data question. It is like, show me how the business is growing, show me what it is that is valuable about it, show me how the company is is progressing. And for us, there are two things I think that data does that's really valuable there. One is it can tell that story, and the tighter that you can tell that story the more people tend to believe like, like quality matters, polish matters in that sense. The better you present that story, just in terms of like the numbers being tighter, the data being tighter, the story being tighter. It's not something that's all kind of loose with charts everywhere. It's something that has a very clear narrative. All of those things really matter. And so part of it was, we just knew how to do that. We knew how to sort of pitch the quantitative story because that's what we've been doing as a job. So that helps a lot. The second thing too that helps is you can tell the story that you want to tell Versus the story that people are going to ask you. If you go to a to an investor and say, "Hey, like, I want you to invest in my business," and you don't give them any numbers, they're going to start asking for the numbers that they typically want to see. Like, they'll be like, "Show me your number of customers. Show me your revenue. Show me, you know, there's the standard set of things they'll ask for." 
if you go to them and say like, hey, here are the number, here's the way that I want you to think of this business. Don't measure us by revenue, measure us by the number of customers we have because we think we can turn this into a lot more money. Or don't measure us by customers, measure us by like community adoption because we're trying to build a freemium product and really that's what matters. You can build a narrative around the thing that you think is capturing the traction of your business. Whereas if you don't have that data, you have to kind of follow the narrative that they're asking. And so that was the other thing I think it helped with is it helped us sort of control the way that we wanted to tell that story and tell it in a way that obviously was favorable for us, but also was a way I felt was like reflective of the way mode would really be successful instead of us trying to just say like fit mode into the box of the way you would measure any other business. I mean, it's partly the same same way that I think we want to actually convince customers of that. Like, we we should tell the same story to both. And if we believe in it, then that's truthful. I think part of it is, you know, in the early days, a lot of it was, hey, we are people who've done this job and understand what this job looks like. Part of it is on your own ability to execute on it. Like, the best idea doesn't always win. It's some combination of the best idea and, and the best execution. Part of it is like, what is the trend that you want to capitalize on? Like, what is the wave that you want to ride? And so we, to investors, had a story around, this is the direction we think the market is going. If you believe the market is going this direction, then then we are riding that wave better than anybody else. Like, make the bet on us. So there's a handful of things like that that, that are useful stories to tell. And all of the you know different investors are looking for different things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, like what matters the most is do customers want to use the product? And you can only kind of tell that narrative for so long without eventually saying like, hey, the market is adopting this thing. The market wants it. We have a successful product. And so, you know, in the early days, it's about the story. In the later days, it's very much about proving that that you actually have a winning hand. And so, you know, in that case, it's build a product customers like. If customers like it, if they want to buy it, then investors are going to invest in it. For the startup piece of it, I think I would say two things. I, you know, if you're like at the very beginning of it, I would one kind of again harping back on this like conviction thing is choose something that you have conviction in and go after it. Like that you can make a lot of ideas work. Like listen to feedback from other people. Don't we were sort of in some ways like dismissive of feedback more than we probably should have been and things like that because we were like, hey, no, this is the right idea. But I think you have to have a belief in in what it is you're going to do and and don't waver too much in that. Like if you have a hypothesis, prove that the hypothesis does or doesn't work. Don't constantly evolve it too much and never actually test that hypothesis. Like test the hypothesis for real, give it a real shot. And if it doesn't work, try something else, but like give it the thing a real shot. I think it's a lot of times people will will constantly be looking for optimization such that the original idea, they never really get to the point of trying. The other thing I would say for people again who are early in the stage of early parts of it is do something that you're excited to work on for the sake of working on it, not for the sake of it being successful. That a lot of people, I think, start companies with the idea that I will be happy I did this if this thing is successful. And if it's not successful, it'll feel like a waste of time or whatever. 
it's a long journey. Like it's a lot of work to do it. It takes a long time. It's not something that's going to be 18 months. It's something that could be many years. Inevitably, there will be moments where the thing does not feel like it's succeeding. And I think to get through those moments, you have to care enough about the problem you're solving for the sake of trying to solve it, that you'll continue to push through that, not care just about the success that it may bring you. If you're just building it for the sake of the success, when those times get hard, it's hard to find motivation because you're like, well, all I wanted this thing was to be successful. It doesn't feel like it's going to be successful. I don't want to slog through a problem I don't really care about. And so I think it's important to have that thing that you're like, I will slog through this problem because I care about the problem. Maybe it's not going to be successful as I think it will, but that's okay. Like I want to try to really solve this, this problem. And so there's a lot of people who get into Silicon Valley because it encourages people to start companies that come at something they're like, I want to start a company. What's my idea? I think that's kind of a dangerous approach. I think it's like, I want to start this company. It's a much easier journey if you're following that path. I would say, um, what's the second question? Let me come back to that. I mean, my, my answers to that are, they're not like business books. They're books more about, there's a handful of books I think that are about, they're interesting perspectives and on the way that the world like actually works and the ways that people are thinking about how that world works that I think are just thought-provoking and the kinds of things that I think help you see things in a different light. And one, one example of that, and this is, this is a bit of an odd, like it's a timely example, just given what's going on in the news, that it's not like a book that I would say, like, I wish my younger self had read specifically for this story, but Bad Blood. Uh, so it's the book about the Theranos thing. It's by like John Carreyrou, who's the, Carreyrou, who's the guy who like was the Wall Street Journal reporter who broke all the stories. The reason I think it's like a very useful thing, particularly for like like entrepreneurs to to read is it's a story of kind of like how this goes wrong. It's a story about like what, you know, I mean, it's a story about like a fraud and scandal, that kind of thing, but it's also a story about there. I remember when Theranos was famous and like when it got popular and you look at this thing as like, Oh, look at, look at what this thing has built. Like, why haven't I built something like that? And that kind of thing. And then all of this stuff happens where the whole thing was kind of a, a scam. And I think there is something in that story that again gets back to this thing like everything is a mess on the inside. Obviously, Theranos was a particular mess and that the whole thing was fraudulent, but nobody really knows what Elizabeth Holmes presented as this like person who was like extremely confident in exactly what she was doing, the kind of person who you look at and you're like, I should be more like that and I'm not. And in her case, again, it was it was sort of the extreme end of faked, but everybody has versions of that. Like every part of that is true in every company where it looks great, but on the inside everybody's panicked. The whole thing is stressful. Nobody knows what they're doing. Most people aren't criminals in doing that, but most people are still like trying to hold this thing together and barely are getting by with it. And there, there is some like sense of, of you can still do like, you can do this. This isn't something where these people are special. This isn't something where everybody's like some untouchable type of person that you will never be. They're just the same as everybody else. And they're just fighting through this stuff the same as everybody else. And if you're making a decision of whether or not you can do it, it's like these people aren't something that's untouchable. These people are the same as you. If you're making a decision, you're like, how am I going to live through this moment when everybody else is doing so well? It's like, they're not. They're all fighting to the same thing too. And so I think there's some like sense of camaraderie that that can create around, all right, I am struggling through the same things everybody else is too. And again, the Theranos example is a particularly extreme version of it, but 
partly because I remember reading the stories but before it all fell apart, seeing that as the kind of thing where it's like, oh, okay, all of these things actually have these sides to them where they aren't what they seem. Every company is some version of someone's Instagram life. Well, like Instagram is not real life. Neither is the sort of profile of the company. And I think that kind of thing can, can really help make it feel like what you're struggling with is not any different than what anybody else is struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. Like it's, it's just, everything is, it's all, it's all a mess. It's always a mess. Every company's a mess. And so to your last question, your question about like a first principles thing, I don't know that this is quite like a first principle thing. I mean, maybe it is. I, my answer to that would basically be the story matters that I think, especially engineers and data people and people who, who are trained to be quantitative. And I, that was my background. I was like a math person. That's what I studied. I did like math and economics. That was like the I did prior to working in tech was that it was all very quantitative. And one of the reasons I liked that studying that stuff was because it felt right and wrong. It felt black and white. And my job was like, find the right answer and that's it. And I think over time, I have very much evolved on that. Where like, there is a tendency for a lot of people, again, especially people from data and engineering backgrounds, to think the thing their job is to do is, is to find the right answer. And it's not. Your job is often to convince people of something. It is to be compelling. It is to tell people a story. That doesn't mean like present the smartest argument. It doesn't mean present the most compelling facts. It means tell a story. And there is no like, there is a book called Houston, We Have a Narrative, which is basically the, the crux of it is, or the title comes from is like the Houston, We Have a Problem was never actually said. It was something that was like a much longer and sort of like less punchy version of that phrase, but they turned it into for the story, Houston, We Have a Problem, because they wanted to tell a story with it. And like that story stuck and the original version of it would not have stuck. And some people may look at that as like taking too much of an artistic license, but I think it's much more useful to look at that as saying like, you made a difference. You figured out a way to make this thing that would not have mattered matter. And so I think like with building a company, when you're telling a story about the company, when you're trying to make a decision, when you're writing a blog post, what doesn't matter as much as the facts. I mean, you shouldn't lie, but like it doesn't matter as much to just say like, I'm going to make sure I, I tell this in a way that is like as factually accurate as possible. The thing that matters is you tell it in a way that is compelling. And again, you can tell something that's very compelling that is factually true. That's not the point. The point is... Don't feel like you have to include every detail. Don't feel like your job is to be the smartest kid in the room. Your job is to be the one that is convincing of people and emotionally connecting with them and things like that. Same. I'm still figuring it out, so... For sure. Happy to do it. Uh, thanks for having me.